Harry de Cosimo a proper Yorkshire name. So you grew up in North Yorks in Sheffield. Funny enough, I was born in uh, Lancashire. Lived right. there for the first five years of my life. My dad's from Gateshead. That's the. I see. Direction. Fab. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and then moved to North Yorkshire, and now I live in East Yorkshire uh, with my with my fiance. But I, my parents still live in North Yorkshire, relatively close to Middlesbrough, actually. So um, I grew up in a Middlesbrough right. area full of people who. who and if you to paint a picture for people who don't who aren't aware of the sort of dynamic of northeast football, Newcastle and Sunderland absolutely hate each other. Middlesbrough kind of want to get in on that action and kind of hate Newcastle, kind of hate Sunderland as well. But <laughs> Newcastle and Sunderland really care about Middlesbrough. That's kind of how the joke runs. Uh, but I kind of had to care a bit more about Middlesbrough because I was getting pelters for being a Newcastle fan uh, at school, which is always quite funny. But but I actually have a have a uh, soft spot for Middlesbrough as a club oh, as well, a result of living around there in a sense maybe not a, not a full soft spot but I quite, quite like I'd like to see them back in the Premier League Oh so do I and they have a very good chairman more shortly but you mentioned two yes. pertinent things in that paragraph fiancé and East Yorkshire firstly congratulations I hope the wedding goes smoothly and indeed can happen Yeah that was supposed to happen in March mm-hmm. uh, well it was supposed to happen the second time in March it was supposed to happen June last year we're just going to hope it happens. But we, but to be honest, I think we were burned by the fact that when we organised it for March, we um, thought that this would all be over. And we thought, because we moved it in March, to March, in about March last year. Mm-hmm. So we thought, well, we'll throw it a year in, in advance. And we'll throw it a year into the future and see where we're at. And we didn't think anything of it. We thought we'd be absolutely fine. Mm. Now we've just said we'll do it at some point in 2020. Yeah, I'd... And where in East Yorkshire will you have the marital home? Just sort of north of... Uh, town, just north of um, Hull and just south of York. So I'm about an hour away from, from where I would call... Tend to call home. I see. My, uh, mum, the... my mum was born in Cottingham. So she grew up first yeah, 10 years of her life in Hull. I'm in Goole, which is about five... About half an hour away from Cottingham. Right, yeah, I think one of the chaps on the Wise Men Say Hull City podcast is in Ghoul. I had already, I'm trying to read the 92, I already spoke to Paul Brown about Newcastle and the Keegan era. Um, So I've already ticked off Newcastle. I've only got, as we speak, Burnley and Sheffield United to go, and then I've read the Premier League, and then I've got about 10 clubs to go uh, for the Championship. I have spoken to a Middlesbrough fan. Uh, Have you read Harry Pearson's books on football in the North East? Yes, I haven't. I, I'm aware of. I haven't read the second one, uh, but, but apparently they're very good. Michael Walker did a piece on um, Harry Pierce, I think. Yeah, he, he his his first book's very good. Oh, it's it was recommended to me by my grandma's brother. He said you've got to read this book, The Far Corner. And I don't think yeah. anyone writes like Harry Pearson. And it's mm. it's proper. It's when Saturday comes. It's football fanzine yeah. with a lot of eye and a lot of heart. I as in. First person singular and a lot of heart. Yeah, and this book, The Father sort of, Corner, is is out now in hardback. Yeah, that that sort of thing is is uh, is what we only what every football writer wishes they could do. And to be fair, I say that you know with George writing the forward for mine, I read George's stuff and think, Phew, I wish I could write like that. There was one of the six. It's anthology worthy. This piece. It was George travelling as an embedded reporter. I think it was down to Crystal Palace and he was with the Newcastle fans and it showed that he he can be objective when he wants, but 
like Fever Pitch, the the narrative and, and indeed the far corner, putting you within the narrative. And you don't do this in your book, Black and White Nights, because it's very objective and you tell the story. Um, yeah. But the best writing is when, an example, is when the author is there, but also somewhat detached. Uh, so I wonder yeah. which other writers, and you can name check some people who are your friends if you want, which writers we should read apart from Harry Pearson and, and you. Well, and George is absolutely the best for that. Um, I think I always like, if you're, if you're interested in, um, in Spanish football, Sid Lowe is, is superb in terms of getting involved in the, th- in, in the thick of it. Any, the athletic is really good at that sort of thing. And getting involved in, and doing sort of pieces that are from different angles. Um, I think Simon Hughes, in, uh, who's a Liverpool reporter for the Athletics, very good at that sort of thing. I think that's kind of like the ideal thing, but, but most people, I mean, specifically with my book, because I was only a kid, to be objective, I had to be objective because I was only a kid at the time. My memories are no better than anybody else's memories. I, don't, I, I didn't know Bobby. I didn't know the inside track of that story before I found out through the people's so that's why I've done it I, but I, I do love the idea of, of writing more connected stuff because it, it, I know what you mean it, it, it adds a different level doesn't it to, to the um, to the record to the narrative yeah I mean I think it's because I've read a lot of biographies but also memoir and I like the synthesis of the two so I think it's because my favorite book's The Great Gatsby which is told by Nick Carraway who is your narrator who is observing and yet unreliable because he's within and without maybe that says a lot about who I am and also my book that I'm not here to plug there's a bit of I but there's a lot of um, third person this book Black and White Knight it is a biography of Bobby's time at Newcastle so it's a chronicle um, how is yeah. it different from his memoir Farewell But Not Goodbye I think because it does different angles of it so Bobby's book which I used a lot of uh, sort of as reference you've got that but you've also got the story being told from also so, so Bobby's family for example there's a sort of difficult side to Bobby's personality and not that he was a difficult person, but the fact is that he loved football and dedicated himself to football so much that the family were sort of put to one side to a degree. His son, Mark, goes into great detail on that, so you get that angle that you perhaps don't get in Bobby's own book. You get the a little bit of the playing side of why Bobby was so great from the other side of the fence, you know, when he would walk into his room his office and talk about Bobby talk to Bobby about um, the problem you had as a player uh, you would walk out feeling 10 foot tall despite the fact that you probably just had a shouting match with him, with him. Uh, then you've got the, the, the boardroom as well you've got the scouting department you've got pretty much the point of the, the way I've done it is to tell the story from literally every single angle um, as best as I could to sort of get a rounded view of that's that era works and why it was so good and what maybe that why they didn't perhaps win a trophy why it ended the way it did so it isn't as I, as I think I said before it isn't all sunshine and roses it, it, it ends pretty abruptly it ends pretty difficult it's a difficult difficult way of ending it because of the way Bobby left it is a chronicle for about nine of the eleven chapters there is one chapter that delves into Bobby's personality a bit more 
there is one chapter that delves into his foundation as well, which I'm donating part of my, um, as a voluntary thing, donating part of my, the money that I make from the book, I'm going to give to the foundation. I must stress, as a voluntary thing, they haven't endorsed it in any way. Mm-hmm. But the story, I think the, the whole point, I wrote a piece on uh, the set pieces about today, on which, by the way, is Bobby's birthday as we currently speak on the 18th of February. Oh, I had no idea. That's great. It's actually Bobby's. It would have been Bobby's birthday. The 88th, his 88th birthday today, and and uh, I, so I, I wrote the piece to sort of explain the level of kindness that that Bobby brought to uh, you know and in, influenced in other people's lives. And I guess that that's why this book is different because Bobby one can't really would never do this, but he can't really talk about how great he is as a how kind he is because he you know and appreciate what his impact is on, on other people because he's he's only speaking from his perspective but also I don't think he was really aware of that I don't think he really quite understood how how much he mattered to other people and he mattered so much to me despite never meeting him and that's what drove me to do the book yeah I feel um, I feel similar about Graham Taylor but go ahead yeah it's, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a there are not many people I think certain clubs have so Manchester United fans will will say this about maybe Bobby Charlton or, or, or Sir Alex Ferguson, Watford fans obviously with Graham Taylor, Bobby for Newcastle fans, Keegan for Newcastle fans. There are certain people who will make you behave a certain way or, or towards them based on your emotion. And I think that that's something that Bobby actually did beyond beyond Newcastle as well. As a lot of England fans will probably think the same, although the England is mentioned in the book. A lot of the stuff to do with England and Ipswich and Barcelona is more context to what happened in Newcastle rather than going in into great detail, but he was he was chastised by the media when he was England manager for long periods. He was vilified. It wasn't a particularly enjoyable, even though he says it was the best time of his career, it wasn't particularly enjoyable for him or his family for long periods because of the way he was treated by the press. He was treated pretty poorly in Barcelona as well in the way he he was he was sort of sacked and, and given you know, got, got pushed upstairs because they, they wanted a sexy name in Lou Van Gaal. A sexy uh, Van Gaal. That's exactly what I think of <laughs> when you say Van Gaal. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah well, that, that, <laughs> exactly. And and um, and then Newcastle come along and do, and do effectively, try to do effectively the same thing, uh, but, but get it so badly wrong that, that it actually spiralled. It started the spiral that we, of the, the, the decline that we now see sort of at the level it is now and as deep it is, as it is now. But I think that that's why it's different is because it, it tells the story of how Bobby impacted other people, which is something I don't think he was ever, he would, he would ever admit to, but he was also, I don't think he was particularly aware of it. And if you want to know the, the chapter I would, I would employ you to read in the book, if you want to know more about what Bobby's personal impact is, read the final chapter because you'll see when he sets the foundation up for the, uh, for the cancer foundation of having in the midst of his own terminal battle with the disease, just because he knows that he's, um, because he cares about other people, he cares about the region, he cares about their battles, he cares about their, their lives as well. People he doesn't even know and he's never met. That sums him up beyond the fact that he took Newcastle to where he did on the pitch. It kind of it tries to, to to explain why he means so much to Newcastle. Because I think also there's a part of it is when you look at the documentaries and the, we mentioned Modern Magic and the, 
when you look at those things, they they look and focus on Barca in England and Ipswich, and Newcastle's kind of an afterthought. Yeah. People think, oh, well, he was there for five years, but they, but he didn't win anything, and he was there as a fan. But really, that isn't delved into much, and actually, that had a really big cultural impact uh, in Newcastle, and and that impact is still felt today. Bobby is probably despite it being his arguably his least successful spell as a manager, he is probably most adored in Newcastle because of side Ipswich perhaps as well, but, but Newcastle he has there's a connection there. Because he was a, a local boy who was born in, in his character in Langley Park, where it's where he lived, which is just sort of up the road from Newcastle. Uh, he went to the club as a boy, but it's it's more the fact that he connected the region. He was very much also, by the way, by the time he passed away and by the time he was, a, he was the leader of a, of a charity rather than a football manager, he was a, a very much the North Easters man. He was the one person who could connect Sunderland to Newcastle to Middlesbrough. This was the era when all three of those clubs were in the top tier. It was the, well, yeah. apart from the 1950s, the greatest era of football in the North East. Um, this book, uh, Black and White Night, because he was nice in 2002, and we do speak on what would have been his 88th birthday so that is a wonderful bit of synchronicity that I usually would have picked up the level of interviewing is outstanding here you've got Les Ferdinand Robbie Elliott who praises Bobby's enthusiasm uh, Rob Lee he said it's hard to be annoyed with Bobby Robson Warren Barton who comes off very well uh, Nobby Solano uh, tell me about Nobby Solano and his trumpet because this is a really good bit of light relief in the book the story about the the reserve team manager, uh, I assume, is the one you're pushing at. Yeah, he he. So Nobby Nobby was a cool hero, and cool heroes tend to be people. I mentioned it about Almiron. Tend to be other people who come in from elsewhere and adapt and 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 get get the club in that sort of like weird sort of sense that is just never really explained. But 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 Nobby came in and he he brought his culture via. Learning that he, he, he explains how he, he played uh, the trumpet and loved music growing up in Peru, but never he, he hadn't picked it up. And then got lessons from his neighbour in Newcastle, had a lot of spare time, and then began to take his, his trumpet to training. When he was injured, he would play the trumpet in the hedges and, and wind Bobby up. He would ring the, the reserve team manager and wind him up as well when he was doing team talk for a game, just because he was bored. He also had a band called, I don't know if it's in the book, I did an interview with, with Nobby. He he actually explains how the details of how he was part of a band called the Geordie Latinos, which is, he, he knew some guys, I think he ran a restaurant in Newcastle from South America, and he became their trumpet player. And so the trumpet thing is what people most, beyond his free kicks and his crosses. Yeah, it's the free kicks that I remember him for, yeah. That's what people in Newcastle probably remember him for as well is his trumpet playing and he was a he was an affable guy he was very funny he was very uh, and like a lot of the guys that, that you mentioned were, were more than happy to talk because they could paint the picture of how great Bobby was as a person and also the impact that he had it wasn't a very nice ending for, for Nobby Nobby started with Bobby though because he he ended up leaving six months uh, into into Bobby's final full season and moving to Aston Villa and eventually returned to Newcastle. He's a, I think if you if you think of a cult hero in Newcastle, I think you, you find it very difficult to find a purer person in that sense than uh, than Nobby Solano. Yeah, I remember him. He was 
It was when football was more innocent before Abu Dhabi took over Man City. What I'm fascinated by with this uh, book is the introduction of um, into the story of Bobby Robson of two men, uh, John Carver and Gordon Milne. Uh, first of all, yeah. were they great to talk to? Uh, and number two, how important was the recruitment to Bobby Robson's success? In terms of how they were to speak to, absolutely brilliant. John Carver's relationship with Newcastle fans is not as good as it perhaps was and should be because they remember him more as the as the sort of manager who nearly maybe narrowly nearly took them down in 2015 under Mike Ashley when actually he was he, he should be more remembered for being Bobby's uh, number two in Newcastle and and also as you know he, he'd been around the, he's, he's a real one of those people who really been around the club a stalwart of the club in the background prior to Ruth Hullet promoting him from the academy and then Bobby uh, taking him on as his number two partway through his reign. Um, so he was great. Gordon Milne was great as well and quite unexpected in terms of I didn't expect to get Gordon Milne involved as, as, as well as I did. But he, he offered a different level of... Because Gordon Milne was a director of football and we actually spoke about this. If you think of director of football now, it's easy to think of them as loggerheads with managers and certainly not friends. Certainly like one is above the other or one is, it's usually the director of football who calls the head of the manager and does all the recruitment and that sort of thing. But Bobby brought Gordon in and Gordon agreed to, he said he would only have done it for, for Bobby, wouldn't have done it for anybody else. And they were, and they were, he was there as a supporter. The name director of football was just, that it was just a name. It didn't really matter. It didn't really make it any much more of a difference than that. Recruitment was absolutely crucial, particularly in the summer of two thousand and one, when the jump from eleventh to fourth in the league because of Lauren Robert and because of uh, Craig Bellamy. I know Bellamy is known as a bit of a troublesome character. Let's say, to put well, it mildly. John Carver but, said he was different to everyone else, and I think his book Goodfella makes that quite clear. Yeah, it does, and also, but that did, but, but uh, John is a very good friend of Craig's, okay. and they, they had some they had some ding dongs in the book, uh, cross moments. But generally, to tell you the importance of, of recruitment, I think John says at one point in the book that um, if Bellamy doesn't get injured at a certain point of, of the two thousand and one two season, which is in March, he gets injured against Sunderland. He does his knee. If he doesn't, then Newcastle. He believes Newcastle are going to win the league. Uh, he does get injured, then Newcastle lose uh, two of three, two of three games, drawing the other one, and suddenly they're out of the title race. Um, and that shows how important both Bellamy specifically was, but also the importance of getting pace and youth into the team, which had already started with the signings of Carl Court earlier, Lamar Luwalawa earlier, Shoulder Ramiobi coming from the youth ranks as well. He streamlined. There was a the club was the, the squad was very much all over the place in terms of there wasn't much balance and dynamic in it when Bobby came in. He streamlined it. He he put a philosophy in, in place in terms of younger British, mainly British players, with the exception of Viana and the exception of Robert. Mainly beyond that, it was it was younger players and, and more British, as I mentioned, and that identity. Then you got the specifics of Robert and, and Bellamy and Genus and 
Woodgate particularly, yeah. the, the four signings that really made the difference. Gordon, uh, Milne and Charlie Woods. Uh, Paul Montgomery is another scout was in there as well. They sort of put together, they were the sort of, they would sit around the table and put together this way of doing it, uh, uh, this philosophy in terms of transfers, and that really paid dividends in the end. One of the best stories in the book comes uh, with the signing of Laurent Robert. Um, can you tell us who recommended? Which mercurial footballer recommended the signing of Laurent Robert? I guess in a sort of roundabout sense, it was uh, Nicholas Anelka, who was... I mean, Charlie uh, Woods was, was on holiday in uh, in Spain and PSG, the PSG team bus, who was playing severe in a friendly or a European game, I can't remember which one. Um, pulls up and Charlie has been watching Robert before. He went and watched training and then Nicholas Anelka is walking past him in the hotel and he sat with his wife and he says, Mr Anelka, do you think Lauren Robert can play in the Premier League? And he said yes. And then that was it. They called. Uh, he called Bobby, he called Freddie Shepherd, and then the deal was done. And uh, Lauren Robert made such an impact culturally again, but also on in terms of the injection of pace and explosiveness to that team he made a massive difference do you think it was helpful um, that he was french and that newcastle already had uh, love for le frenchman in their hearts i mean with you know, to give you a bit of context that season the first season one two which is when newcastle finished four the dvd that came out the season review was called a return of the entertainers ah, yeah. which is obviously a reference to the entertainers of kevin keegan which has uh david Giller and the team playing on the left. And there has always been a... It, it, at the start, it started off as a comparison, even though they're very different players. Jinnler was more of a dribbler and he'd go past the player. Robert was more about crossing and free kicks and being explosive and shooting from literally anywhere on the pitch almost. There's, so there were differences, but they were compared early on. And then when later on happened, Ben Arthur comes in, yes. it's more of a progression. Now St. Maxman, you've, you've got like... French left-wingers from Ginola, Robert, Ben Arthur, St. Maximin. And while the club has gone that way, those players have always been the most, arguably among the most popular in the squads that they've been in. Although I, re- I recognise you don't mention Gabriel Aubertin or Florian Tovan, for good reason. Yeah, I tried to stay away from I, I, try, I did toy with a little bit of more detail on, at the end of the final chapter of the book I pushed forward and tried to take 2004 to now and I did toy with doing a little bit more detail going into what really went wrong but partly because that's another book in itself anyway no that, that'll be the next one um, but this also because it takes away from from what Bobby did and really sort of takes away from the story and decided against it but perhaps maybe who knows stick uh, it whether I'm, Leave it, leave it on the desktop. I'm sure it will come in handy. This book is called Black and White Night, which is out as you listen to this today. Congratulations for getting a book published. It's always a thrill, and I've spoken to about 500 authors who are on pitch, it seems. And the, the catalogue is sensational for what they do. I, I met Paul Camelin, and I've spoken via email with Jane. And this is the um, publishing house which... Uh, gives not niche but or even local football stories but just stories about football which are also about the human condition Um, and this one is about Newcastle in the years between 1999 and 2004 but I would argue and I thought this about six minutes ago 
It's a parable. And it's a parable because it's about the ascendancy of the Brat Pack and the fall of the Blue Chip Boy. I think the demise of Bobby Robson can be attributed to the rise of the Brat Pack. And just so that the listener doesn't think I've taken some Ayahuasca pepper, (laughs) what am I talking about? So the the Blue Chip Boy is, is something that was created by Bobby off the back of the Rude Hullet era. I mentioned earlier on Hullet had a really difficult relationship generally with the senior players. It comes to a head with Shearer in that Sunderland game, but he's ostracised Rob Lee. Um, he's annoyed um, Warren Barton uh, as well. Stuart Pearce and John Barnes have left by the time this all came to a head. But generally, the, the senior players were, were out of the way. Rude Hullet wanted to be the big guy in the, in the club and no one to really challenge him. Then he leaves and then Bobby brings in those players that I've just mentioned and gets them around the table and says, right, you, you're going to be my eyes and ears in effect. Gary Speed as well, involved in that. Shay Given as well, who I speak to in the book. But Warren Barton and Gary Speed were particularly good on the ground with the players in terms of massaging the egos when Bobby wasn't there, maybe sort of controlling a little bit the, the, the growth of the Brat Pack, which... Started it kicked into gear when Bellamy gets there, but Kieran Dyer's in there as well, Carl Cole, and there was a real age gap that developed at the very height of the, the team. You've got Gary Speed and Warren Barton in the middle of that, really the glue that kept it all together. I mentioned the story of how Gary Speed leaves in the summer of 2004. That can be something that, that you can attribute the, the demise of, of the, the perception that the club went out, that the, the squad went out of control because there was nobody in that middle ground to sort of make sort of bridge the gap between, first of all, the older players and the younger players, but also uh, the younger players and Bobby. Even though Dyer and Bellamy love Bobby, and they and Dyer particularly has, has been very open about that fact, they have, they have a very speci- uh, special relationship. There was a, the, the, the brat pack of Dyer and Bellamy. They were difficult to handle. And it's worth pointing out that it was Bobby who deliberately he got rid of Warren Barton and, and Rob Lee. You know, so he did that on purpose. And then it's also worth pointing out that he managed Bellamy for and Dyer for, for three years before it was perceived that they became a problem. And Gordon Milne actually points out that those same things that, that became it, 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 that, that led to there being a belief that there was a discipline issue within the squad. Certain, certainly things did happen within the squad the stories of Bellamy walking off the training pitch for example and Dyer you know refusing to play on the right against Middlesbrough which was one of the sort of things that was was pointed that story's delved into in more detail but it's one of those things that that, pe- that people were pointing to as a reason why Bobby had to go Gordon Milne says that those sorts of things were happening the years prior to to, to the exit and also like I think it's also worth pointing out and I think Mark Robson says this. He dealt with Gascoigne, he dealt with Ronaldo, he dealt with Romario, he dealt with various Stoichkov, some really, really difficult characters as well as talented players. So it's a little bit over, it does exaggerate, over exaggerate the problem that the Brat Pack gave him, but they certainly, the Brat Pack was a thing that, that at, at a time when football was, football was changing and footballers were getting more money and getting more opinionated and things. Yeah. At a younger age, 
the, it, it, it developed into a point where it was able to be to be dismissed as a when things got difficult and and the, and the board decided to act. I think they used that as a shield rather than being the actual truth. But that certainly became the the, the thing that people know. And, it's, and Dyer and Bellamy still haven't lived that down for the fact that they that they certainly contributed to all to to Robson's sucking. I think they certainly did contribute to it, but I don't think that they were ever, you know, I don't think it's fair to say that they were completely responsible, which is what some people would have you believe. I took a penalty against Shea Given once. It was uh, in Media City on the piazza, and it was for sport relief, and Shea, being a BBC pundit, was saving, do you remember this? He was spending a whole day saving penalties. Oh, uh, yes, I do remember. Didn't David James do something similar as well? Uh, possibly. That's that means a bit of a bell. I remember James doing that, yeah. Uh, and I, I remember just, I just thought, just hit it, just hit it hard. And obviously, given yeah. read my eyes and he saved it. And I went up yeah. to him afterwards and said, I enjoy your punditry work. Uh, I have since uh, read his book, Any Given Saturday or Any Given, Sa- it's called Any Given Saturday, isn't it? I think so, yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it comes across that. really well. And he yeah. is ever present apart from one crucial game uh, in those two glorious seasons. Which game is it that Steve Harper keeps a clean sheet in? The Juventus game, I believe. It's the, the Blackburn game where he concedes five. And Steve Harper's sort of always been a sort of... There's a belief in Newcastle that if Steve Harper doesn't stay in Newcastle, stay loyal to Newcastle, that he could probably have played for England a couple of times. Possibly so I'm looking at some of the keepers at that time. I don't think that's unfair uh, to suggest. But he, at that point, he hadn't played for a year, as you mentioned. Um, then then uh, Newcastle conceded five against Blackburn four days before they played Juventus in the Champions League at home. Shea pays the price for that. And then Steve Harper keeps a clean sheet against Juve uh, in, a game, in a game in which Andy Griffin scores the winner. Probably a Gigi Buffon on goal, really. But uh, Andy, Andy Griffin... Scores the scores the, the winner, but so it, it's a sort of and that's a champion of that. that. That's a great example of what Bobby really did in that he he didn't have a team of great stars, you know. In, no. in, they weren't all Shearers or Bellamy's or, or geniuses. He also raised the game of of Andy Griffin and and uh, Andy O'Brien and and Steve Caldwell, who's very who's very prominent. Comes across book. very well in the book. Yeah. Yeah, Steve Caldwell is a great guy and um, also very honest and, and, and very good, particularly when we talk about when Jonathan Woodgate comes in to strengthen that defence. And that game, I think, more than any other really proves... Because if you look at the, the Manchester United game, the 4-3, that's, that's talked about Robert is key in that game. Bellamy scores the winner against Feyenoord. Shearer scores twice against um, Inter in the San Siro. But the Juve game is won by Andy Griffin. And that kind of is sort of shows the beauty of what Sir Bobby was able to do to ev- with everybody at that club. He raised, he made everyone feel a million pounds worth a million worth a million dollars worth, and and that game sort of shows it. And Steve Harper, he doesn't really get featured in the book because his impact was really felt later when when Shea leaves, goes to Man City. After that point, he was very much on the periphery, despite having been there for for his whole life. Yeah. Um, but, it was a, but that game does certainly really remind me that makes me think that actually, let's you can you can talk about the Shearers, the Bellamy's, the Dyers, but actually what he did with Andy Griffin 
and the like. And so a lot of the players, Wayne Quinn, who we brought in, uh, Andy O'Brien, these aren't players who would ever get anywhere near Champions League or European football anywhere else. And, and that, that's reflected in the rest of their careers. They played Wayne Quinn, went to West Ham, came from Sheffield United. Andy O'Brien played for Portsmouth and West came from Bradford City. And, you know, and, 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 and that's kind of also indicative of what Bobby did was that he was able to, to raise... to. Newcastle didn't just compete in the Champions League, they made history as well as the first team to lose their first three games and still qualify from the group stage. Yeah. In those days, two group stages as well. It's crucial to remember that they weren't... It's not like Manchester United doing that where every player is a, a Rio Ferdinand or a, or a Peter Schmeichel at different points or a Beckham or a Ronaldo or a Giggs or a Van Nistel or a Rooney. Newcastle had a couple of stars that they built themselves around, but, but in reality... They were they, they they weren't they weren't all world class or brilliant players in, in in their own right. Can you no? I've just pulled it up now. Um, here is the eleven, and you may have been at this match. Newcastle against Barcelona in the second group stage of that year's Champions League. Um, yeah, uh, we'll start with the Newcastle team. So Shea Givens in goal. Who's the back four? I'm guessing off the top of my head. Uh, I mean, I, I don't remember actually looking this up, but probably someone along the lines of Griffin. Or Bernard, Bramble, O'Brien. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yep, yep, both of them. Both Griffin and, and Bernard played. The midfield yeah. four. Uh, is this the away leg or the home leg? Home leg. I'm guessing Dyer, Genus, Speed and Nobby. Speed, Speed was either injured or suspended. Robert played on the left. Shearer and Bellamy okay. were up front. Can you name the Barcelona yeah. team or some of them? Clive was in there. Thiago Motta, uh, Chavi Hernandez, um, Michael Reitzinger, maybe yep. Cristobal. Uh, it wasn't. It, it was. A, it wasn't a very good Barcelona side. It must be said. It, it was still Barcelona, but it wasn't anything that Ronaldinho comes in after next season, and Reitzinger comes in after that, and Laporta, and then they go up again and become Pep Guardiola's all-conquering greatest team we've ever seen. In Although 2011. some of them were there, uh, Busquets and Iniesta were on the bench. Victor Valdez was in goal. Um, yeah. And interestingly, both Mendieta and Rockenbach were playing for Barcelona. Yeah, we obviously went on to play for Middlesbrough. Yeah. Um, but uh, but that, so, so that, that Barca uh, team, as I say, wasn't particularly strong as a but It wasn't even as comparable to the 1997 team, which is funny enough. Ronaldo? Who was the director of football. No, Rivaldo was in charge. Ronaldo was up front, sorry. Uh, Ronaldo had just left to go to into that season that was the year that, Ronald, that Bobby moved upstairs Van, Van Paul comes in and Newcastle win 3-2 Tino Asprey scores a hat-trick and everyone was getting annoyed it was two nights ago when as we speak when Mbappe scored uh, a hat-trick against Barcelona and everyone said oh he was the second player to score a hat-trick against Barcelona in the Champions League next to uh, Andrei Shevchenko who scored a hat-trick against Barcelona the game after Tino Asprey did in the same season but those three players are the only players to ever score a hat-trick against Barcelona. But, that, yeah, so that Barca team wasn't particularly special on the face of it. It wasn't It wasn't go, go, going in the same direction that it did. Well, no, because, because they're but, in the shadow of what Real and the Galacticos were doing. But precisely, but, yeah. but, I mean, they're still Barcelona and they're still a better team than Newcastle mm-hmm. should be. And Newcastle, I mean, they, they, they did lose both games, but... That, I think by that point Newcastle had kind of run out of a bit of steam. That that 
group stage was much more difficult than the first one on paper as well. Yeah. In Quite reality, Newcastle were probably as good as Feyenoord and Kiev and would have battled against Juve, whereas Inter, Bayer Leverkusen, I'll bet they beat Bayer Leverkusen twice uh, over both legs, uh, of, the, of both games. Yeah, both group stage. Games, yeah. But, um, but Bayer Leverkusen were the finalists from the previous season. That's the goal Zidane scored at... Um, Hamden Park. Yes, there, the goal. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it was against by that by Leverkusen side. So there was it was going to be it was always going to be difficult once they got through the first group stage and they managed to compete, but it was just a step too far. I think the Inter the not beating Inter. I know it's a legendary game, but they drew at the San Siro. But if they'd won that game, which they arguably deserved to do, then they could they would have had a better chance of going through against Barca if they beat Barca again. At St James's Park, but by the time Barca come to St James's Park on the final game of, the, of that group, Newcastle have kind of done anyway, and it kind of feels a little bit. It's it's one of those where if results go their way, then they might slip through, but it wasn't it wasn't in their own hands. I think that that sort of ended up costing them in the Champions League. But but by that point, I think the history had already been made. The journey was already run, and it was and and nobody looks back at the Barca games and thinks, oh well. It's not worth celebrating because we lost. It's worth celebrating because Newcastle mm-hmm. somehow, despite being where they were three years prior. Oh, absolutely. To, this is I haven't I haven't quoted it yet, but Robson came to the club. Uh, Newcastle were in ruins and on the brink of self destruction. Four years later, they're playing Barcelona. Five years yeah. later, they're playing Marseille, and uh, they undergo somewhat of a Drogba masterclass. Although this. Um, the end of the 2003-04 season, uh, which Newcastle finished third at the end of it? The 3-4 season, they finished fifth. fifth. Uh, and that was kind of kind of why the problems really... St- I mean, the, there were so many different issues that, that sort of led into the whole thing, and that goes into... That, that's really sort of the detail in that whole chapter, but they finished fifth, and they lost to Marseille, and that's kind of where all of the sort of negative feelings that have been bubbling away came to a head. Yeah. But, it does seem that they were festering for all season, then suddenly they burst out. But this is the UEFA Cup semi-final, albeit with plenty of injuries, including Jonathan Woodgate, uh, who yeah. was part of the team that season. Um, yeah. Fun fact, I didn't realise this, Nigel Pearson was on the coaching staff. How did he get that job? He, I think he was in the reserves first, and he became prominent later. I think I don't know if he was... He became prominent later under, under Allardyce, I think a highly rated coach at the time. I don't think he had any connections to Newcastle. But yeah, I mean, that team and that season was difficult. Woodgate being injured for the second leg was a real shame because I think even he admits himself that that's his best ever game. The first leg against Marseille when it's nil Nils and James Park and he keeps Drogba in his pocket. Uh, then he's injured for the second game alongside Dyer, Boyer, Genus, there's a big chunk of the team that's, that's missing for the second leg. Which is very similar uh, to what happened with... Oh, no, uh, Tony Pulis ended up resting everyone for the UEFA Cup game um, with Stoke. Yeah. But, um, yeah, the, the one thing that I noticed from all the stats is that for a great team, you need a lot of different goal scorers. In this season, Alan Shearer scored 22 times in the league. No one else came yeah. anywhere near. So was it Shearer holding up the... Were it not for Shearer's goals, would there have been trouble during the season? I think it, you're right because I think I even said in the in the season that they finished fourth. I actually quoted the goals and 
you've had Shearer, then you've had Bellamy, and then you had Solano and Dyer and Speed all, all roughly around the same sort of like high high single single okay. digits. But by the time that that happened, and at the start of the season, there's a question mark over whether Newcastle should sell Shearer to Liverpool, which is quite no weird to think. But oh, well, we was there. Owen referenced that conversation with Shearer and her argument on Twitter a few years ago. Uh-huh. But um, yeah, that, that was a conversation that was that was had. It was discussed, and it decided that basically not to go ahead with it. But Shearer was. His last great season at the, at the peak of his powers, Bellamy was. There was a lot of injuries in that season as well. Uh, Dyer struggled with injuries again. Bellamy struggled with injuries again. But yeah, I mean, that season was a really weird season generally. In that Newcastle only finished on fifty-six points and still finished fifth. When it was the year that Arsenal were invincible, yeah. and got nineteen points. So it sort of distorted the. The, the whole season, the whole league season was distorted completely by by what Arsenal were doing and it wasn't as level, you know, in terms of, I think Newcastle got 71 points when they finished fourth, the two years prior, and then they got 56 and finished third. So it was a difficult season. Obviously, I think we would, as the story goes, everybody would, would love to go back and do and have that season again. And would take fifth and, and everything that happened that year in a heartbeat compared to what they have now. But oh yeah! At the, time, at the time, it was disappointing. He didn't deserve what happened the way it happened, but there were there weren't that many people when Bobby left. There weren't that many people who were who were, who were crying about it and were upset that Bobby had left. Really, I think the problem happened when they decided to go in the in the direction they did. But that Marseille game. There's a, a detailed little argument that the that the boardroom that the board had in the, in the hotel that was and, and there the, the became that thing where the board and and Sir John and Freddie Shepherd started to sort of air their dirty linen in public, if you like, and and they would go public with their criticism. And I think John Carver actually says once that happens, then the writing's on the wall. There was a lack of respect towards the end for what Bobby had done and a lack of a lack of foresight for thinking that that it would just I think everyone just assumed it would carry on that it, forgetting the fact that he'd taken them from the brink of relegation and put them back in Europe I think everyone just thought that, that it would carry on and I think once they did what they did alright the, the, the decline was slower and involved a separate owner because Sir John and Freddie departed in 2007 yeah. um, but they ended up sliding right back down to where they were when Bobby picked them up because and and I would say that that was the day that not necessarily because Bobby left but that was the day that actually this decline started yeah and it's it's all documented after all the highs um, the deep deep lows of the chapter when um, Bobby left and then of course he had cancer struck him again uh, it was the the fifth yeah. time cancer struck. Finally, got him in two thousand and nine. When he died, yeah. um, were you as stunned as I was when Graham Taylor died in twenty seventeen? He is Mister Watford Graham Taylor, uh, yeah. and yeah. and he still he's got the statue and all of that. But just the it struck me that you can live life in a Graham Taylor kind of way, and in the same way, I used to call Bobby Robson the oldest man in football, and he was. But there was a certain patrician charm in. The, the perspective of how he how people viewed him 
I just think the the pilot light of Newcastle are the likes of Shearer and Milburn and Robson, and that's not there. And the sooner a new owner comes in and revives that, the better Newcastle United will be. So regardless of what happens this season, do you hope that any new ownership, the first thing they'll do is roll out the red carpet for Keegan and Shearer to come back? It would be the easiest um, PR thing in the world. Oh, no, they'd put Keegan on a a helicopter, wouldn't they? They'd fly him in in a helicopter. Yeah, I mean, that would be... That would show that they've done their research. Yeah. Um, but but Keegan is is not welcome in Newcastle. Or at least he feels like he isn't. Shearer doesn't feel particularly welcome at Newcastle, even though he's been back more than Keegan has. The, there was a slight difference with, with with Bobby when he passed away. Is that he he'd been I mean, the story is documented again in the book that he'd been in uh, out in public yeah. a few days earlier at St James's Park for a charity football match for the foundation. And he looked, he looked very, very frail. And you could, and there was a sense that it was kind of coming. It was probably going to be his last public appearance. But it was, it hit me, it hit me hard. I was fifteen or sixteen at the time, uh, and it hit me hard because he was the first, the first football man, save probably Alan Shearer, that I ever, I ever loved. Really, I felt, I always feel really sad that I never actually got to meet him because I think if I, if I did, then it would have been brilliant. But. Yeah, I think that Newcastle needs to connect with back with, with itself again. It needs to connect with the people that made that made it great. There's a distinct lack of soul about it, and that comes from partly because of the way that they've treated legend, ultimately legendary figures like um, like Keegan and Shearer, but also like people who were not given the opportunity to become legends, like like Rafa Benitez, but also as well. The way that they've treated other players, other people like players like Jonas Gutierrez when he had cancer. Oh, that, that was disgraceful. 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 Jo- even Jose Enrique, who, was, who had an interview with the other day, his contract situation, the way he, d- he documents that, just the way that the club is run is very sort of like, there's no personality to it. And that's what Newcastle is all about, is its personality. It's, just, it's one of those clubs like Liverpool... That, that really worships its people. That, that, that really worships the people that, that take to it. And I know that's probably most clubs in, in reality, but it certainly feels like Newcastle. It really matters more to be. If you are, you 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 don't have to be particularly great. You just have to be. You just have to represent something close to what the fans view. That's, that's why Chris Hutton's always very popular in Newcastle. He didn't he got the club back up, but he didn't. He He isn't a. He wasn't a particularly exciting manager or particularly outspoken man, but he he is always really really welcome in Newcastle because he believed what the club, the club should be, what it what it, what the fans did, and no owner will ever be truly sort of will ever be truly accepted. It would be the biggest PR own goal of the person they didn't do, particularly with Keegan, is is getting back in some sort of ambassadorial role, getting back, you know, serenading. Getting serenaded by the crowd on on South Circle St James's Park because we are now um, we're now twenty five years from the Love It Love It Entertainers season. I'm sure there will be plenty yeah, of articles. Yeah, yeah exactly. And forget the pause on the, the thing about personalities. It's got like drama, like where you where you would put where you would put it in a movie. That it's going well, and then something happens, and then there's a sad ending, and then but it, there's like really big bits you can you can focus on and and and, and really explain. What, uh, that really that are worth telling, you know, things like the, the Champions League season in the middle of 
what was uh, but but where they've come from and where he leaves them. That sort of whole thing is the second chapter of really the two greatest modern day Newcastle sides following on from the Keegan years, where you could do the same thing where he picks them up in, when they're in the doldrums in, in Division 2, buys Andy Cole, Andy Cole fires into the Premier League. Then he sells Andy Cole, buys Les Ferdinand, nearly fires into the Premier League. Then he buys Alan Shearer and then he leaves. And it's kind of the same, that same sort of like, it's easy to follow as a narrative. And, um, and Newcastle at the moment is not easy to follow in a positive narrative. Going back to what we were saying about Mark Hardy before in the way he writes, that's kind of why, because there's nothing to really celebrate yeah, well we're, we're deep in act two and hopefully the redemption act three will come uh, and part of act one uh, the rise and rise is documented in black and white night a book that comes out today as you listen to this by harry de cosimo who wrote a piece uh, which is available at footballwriters.co.uk that i would love to discuss but i will just tell the listener go and read it um because it, it explains something about you that I didn't know. I'm, I'm finding in your corner, and I look forward to seeing your career rise and rise with Newcastles again. Uh, I love this. My desperation to mimic Alan Shearer and Les Ferdinand inadvertently improved my ability to walk, run, and stand. So Alan yeah. Shearer changed your life, among others. And I'm, I'm delighted. Yeah. And, and one thing that we do need in the press box when it comes back uh, I've been in press boxes before. Very what? Very male um, and very able-bodied, I think is all I'll say about that. But do you want? Uh, you can finish this just by saying your hopes just for the journalism, football journalism in general in the next 10 years and the accessibility thereof, because I know it's close to uh, what you're doing. It just needs to be more, more diverse, more... There needs to be, more, there needs to be an accept, a belief... I think it'll come from a belief and a conversation that if you look at somebody with a disability, you know, as you alluded to, that I have, or if you, even if you look at somebody who may not be a white male and think, and the first thing you, you think is not whether they can do the job, it's, it's how well they can do the job, I guess is the way to, to put it across. Um, and that you don't look, and that, and that they are given a level, you know, I'm not asking for a free ride at, at work. I'm not, asking for that for anybody but I think it's just worth you know you kind of have to have these big explosions of oh yeah that's interesting and people have to read it and go oh I didn't know that and then there can be a discussion I mean I I, I kind of went on a little bit of a rant on Twitter the other day when I saw someone put up a statistic about the number of different uh, you know diversity things like uh, ethnic minorities over 50s female all these things and people with disabilities in regards to the jobs that people have in in TV and media industries, like producers and editors and directors and stuff, and there's like, and it was colour coded red, amber, and green for how much diversity there is. If it was green, then that was it was going well. If it was amber, there was more work to do. If it was red, then there needed to be more work done. And everything on the disability sector uh, was red, and it was the only one that every single one was red. There's no real hope for disability at the moment because. Racism and gender equality are the two big things at the moment that people are talking about, and that's brilliant, and it deserves to be talked about. Fantastic, um, and nobody is taking that away. But it feels like disability isn't even on that same. It isn't even in in the psyche yet. I fear that people will look at, you know, for example, most press boxes aren't even accessible for wheelchairs. So you people will look at someone in a wheelchair and think, oh, or with a disability, and 
automatically question their ability to to do the job. I was lucky enough that I caught, I sort of made the, an impassioned sort of email saying I wanted to do this for Disability Awareness Month uh, to Carrie Brown, the Football Writers Association, and she backed me all the way. And everybody at the Football Writers Association backed me all the way. And it's my pinned tweet on Twitter, and I think it will be for a long time, because it, it, it made me feel like I could own my disability a lot more mm-hmm. than I could before. I always felt weird at school and... and and uncomfortable in places and, and, and thinking what do people think about me and that sort of thing and it was difficult to to sort of articulate how I felt about my disability that allowed me to take ownership in the in the best way possible to have the messages and to have the support and to have the the things that I've had since that since that article went live in December sort of vindicate sorry the, the feeling that I have that I've I've done the right thing and I can feel like I can move on yeah and uh, start to maybe, maybe fight that fight a little bit. It means that there are two things I'm looking forward to. Newcastle qualifying for a European competition and correct access for disability uh, and different, differently abled people. Can we just say disabled? Yeah, yeah just, I mean, just disabled or, or like, I think the word technically is enabled because I think people like to, be, like to think of that they're enabled in a, in a world when... when Despite despite what they what they may appear to, to struggle with, but I think generally journalism and it's not just disabilities as well. Like journalism is a notoriously difficult industry to break into. It's a notoriously sort of like privileged industry and very cut off industry in terms in so many ways. Just as what I mentioned about film and TV as well before, these are these industries they need a a reality check anyway. Like just not just for disability, just making it more more accessible, making it less about external factors and more about someone's ability to do, to do the work. And it feels like some people, certain demographics of people, disability is included in that, need to fight to prove that they can work, whereas other people it's kind of taken for granted, and that's, that's not right. So that's what needs to change. Thank you. I'm, I'm glad I got you to say that again. It's, um, it is footballwriters.co.uk and it's a piece for Disability Awareness Month, but it is the pinned tweet uh, at Harry's um, Twitter account, Harry DeCosimo, C-O-S-E-M-O, although that name is on the cover of Black and White Night, um, the glorious new book, uh, the first of many, hopefully, by Harry DeCosimo, Hawaii the Lads. <laughs> Thank you very much uh, for, for having me on. It's been great to, to talk to you and... Um... I can write a second or a third, depending on where I go next, and, and I'll be talking about how the club built on on what Bobby did, and, mm. and, and that's kind of the message. I should actually mention, actually, what what we didn't, what I haven't mentioned to you and, and other people when I've spoken about this is when I originally pitched the idea back in March last year. Um, that was at the height of the, of the takeover, so I assumed that I would be writing this book at the at the time. The takeover would have happened, so I was almost trying to angle it as this is what Bobby Robson did. This was the blueprint of how he made New Beetle Newcastle from the bottom to the top. Do That's this, what yeah, do this effectively. <laughs> and then once it got to about May, when they when Pitch actually got back to me and Paul said that they wanted me to do the book, the takeover was 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 not in tatters, but it was it would it had gone quiet. It didn't look like it was going to happen. Then in July is still going on now, but then in July it sort of took its step to really everyone started to believe it was it was not going to happen. So I had to rebrand it slightly, and I kind of 
diluted that sort of like do this element, but it still is kind of like a. I guess what Bobby did is a guide for for future owners, regardless of whether that's Stabley's uh, Saudi consortium or, or anybody else. And proceeds from the book, some of them go to the Bobby Robson Foundation as a voluntary donation. Uh, yes. And that is, but it's what Bobby would have wanted. Thanks so much, Harry. Thank you very much, Jason. Just like the library! Just like the library!